This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome to Beyond Politics. I'm your host, Paul Hodes, with my co-host, Matt Robeson. We're broadcast on WKXL AM and FM in Concord and coming soon to Manchester, New Hampshire, where podcast wherever you find your podcasts. And if you're listening on podcast, please subscribe to the podcast, like us, tell your friends, and share on social media. We're really delighted today to welcome uh, a special guest, my friend, Congressman John Yarmouth. He and I came into Congress together, but he's still there. And he's the only Democrat in Kentucky's congressional delegation since 2013. He announced last Tuesday that he'd retire after this term. Now, anyone who knows Congress knows what a big, big deal this is. John has served as chairman of the House Budget Committee since 2019. He's been recognized for his work to improve education, expand access to affordable health care, and recently for his leadership in enacting the American Rescue Plan, landmark legislation to defeat the pandemic and rebuild our economy. So, folks, those of you who are listening, um, take note, it's not many people in life who get to be one of the key architects of a $1.9 trillion bill and not just any bill, a bill that is lifting 5 million American children out of poverty, saving millions from losing their homes, and saving lives every day by getting people vaccines. John was born and raised in Louisville, Kentucky. He graduated from Yale University. He was in the newspaper business for a long time. He and his wife, Kathy, have one son, Aaron. John and Aaron and I took a trip, as I recall, together to Israel. That was an important trip for me, and we had a great time. He's got a daughter-in-law, Sarah, a grandson, J.D., and um, John, very importantly, now all the other accolades aside, folks, John was chair of the Bourbon Caucus. And that perhaps was the most important and, and one of the most beloved caucuses, of which I was a fond member. Meetings of the Bourbon Caucus were held in John's office, where the display of Kentucky bourbon was unlike anything else in the known world. So, John, really happy to have you joining us on Beyond Politics. Oh, thanks, Paul. It's great to be with you. It's great to hear your voice. And, uh, you know, I think back to those early days uh, where we came in to Congress having reclaimed the majority for Democrats, and we were known as the majority maker, our first class president. And, you know, it's it's been an interesting journey for sure. <laughs> oh man, things have changed. Things have changed over the past ten years since since I chose to try to run for the Senate, gave right. up my seat, and but you've stayed. And 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 John, I mean, it's it's not amazing to me because your expertise and your ability to to think and lead was so evident when we came in. Uh, together. And you've been chairman of this extraordinary, extraordinary effort in terms of the current 
uh, budget battles, which are ongoing as, as we speak. Clearly, what's going on now about the budget, the reconciliation, what size the uh, Build Back Better program will take are, are in everybody's mind. But I guess my question is, given given the important position you now have and the skill with which you've maneuvered, why are you hanging it up now? <laughs> well, you know, it's, it was a bittersweet decision, but I would say 95% of the reasons are, is, is a very simple one. And that is that I'll be 75 years old when my term ends and whatever time I have left, whether it's five years or 25 years, I want to control it. I uh, have more control over it anyway. Mm. And you, you know, as, as well as I do, that when you're in, in Congress, you've lost total control of your time. And, you know, I, I always said that when I left Congress, if I ever wrote a, a book about my experience, it would be called House Arrest, because <laughs> there, there are all sorts of things that make it very difficult to leave unless you're defeated, obviously. But the, kind of the cycle of the, the, the fundraising and the the, the filing deadlines and all these things, it's very difficult with a, a two-year cycle and you have to start thinking, well, where do I want to be? And, you know, in, in my case, we have January filing deadlines. So once you get elected, you basically have, or you're sworn in for your new term, you basically have a year to decide whether you want to be there three years hence. And for somebody in their 30s or 40s, that's generally not a tough decision. But when you're when you're again mid going to be in mid seventies, it's a whole different calculation. And I know that when I talked to Jim Clyburn and told him the reasons why, and I said I feel stupid saying this to you at eighty one, and you're still you're still around. Right. But he, he certainly understood that, as did the Speaker and and Standing Hoyer. But that's really, I mean, you know, the thought of possibly serving in the minority in the next Congress is certainly terrifying, but. I'm actually more optimistic than most about our chances of keeping the majority. So that was, that really wasn't a factor in my decision. This was really, what do you want to do with the rest of your life? Yeah. You know, I, I don't, I don't think that most people listening who, who read, read headlines and read about members of Congress and, and, and read about the work of Congress don't really understand or hear too much about the life of a congressman and don't probably don't appreciate what it's like to be on the continual cycle of trying to do your job and then at the same time in an ethical and an honest way run for office literally at the same time that you're trying to do the job and the pressures that come with it you know, I mean, I, I, I have sometimes joked on this show, I spent my time in Congress in a beige windowless cubicle, being handed uh, call sheets by 20 somethings and calling people who used to be my friends uh, for money. And, and, and then I'd occasionally get to go and go back to my, my, my committee and do some work making an appearance on C-SPAN in an empty room or visiting the House floor where I'd finally get to relax with people waiting for votes. So, so the, the pressure, if you, if, you, if you pay attention and do your job, as you have done, the, the, the pressures are, are enormous and it is not it's not a glamorous life. It's, it's, it's extraordinarily hard work. So I, I hear you and I appreciate, I appreciate your sharing with us the, the, the real life factors that have gone into your decision. Right. One other thing, Paul, that I, I think what, 
like the first year I was there, people would ask me, as I'm sure they did you, what was your biggest, what's been your biggest surprise about the right. job? Yep. And I would always answer how physically demanding it is. Correct. I mean, just here, you know, we don't eat well, we don't sleep well, we're, we're commuting uh, every week back to our districts. When we're in our districts, we're running around like crazy. And, you know, again, losing, we have no control of our schedule. You're doing eight, nine events a day. And when you're on the hill, you're constantly walking back and forth. It's, yeah. You know, I, I have a couple of, I had a couple of pairs of shoes, John. I had a couple yeah. of pairs of shoes when I was in Congress, all black, of course. Now I spiced them up with colored shoelaces, but I, I, I was going through some stuff at recently to, to try to get rid of old stuff. I found these old shoes. The heels were all worn down on all my shoes because we basically had to walk something like six six miles a day back and right. forth uh, from office to committee to the house. And I mean, it is, it's a physically demanding job. Yeah. Well, you know, and actually I'll just put in from a staffer perspective that one of the, one of our jobs is, you know, you're constantly being inundated with requests from constituents and advocacy groups and media and everything else. And then there's the leadership in the house who's calling you up and saying, hey, you got to get your boss there for this vote and you've got to do this. And the hours are long. We're not making any of this stuff up. One of the things that would happen with Paul and Paul's not a wimp. I, I guarantee you folks, Paul is not a wimp. One of the things that would happen is every few months, he just, he'd just have a physical collapse. He would just suddenly call up and he'd say, I can't go anywhere. I, I've collapsed. And, you know, we'd send him to the house physician and they'd literally shoot you full of steroids. I'm not making this up. And you'd kind of like Lazarus, like rise from the bed and you, you know, you'd go and meet with constituents. It, it, this is a real thing. It's a good story, but absent the steroids, they did not shoot me up full of steroids. But I mean, maybe I did, it was something stronger. No, 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 no. But I did frequently come down with stuff, you know, because folks, this is pre-COVID. So, so luckily you didn't have to worry about COVID. COVID has only added to the health concerns, but I was constantly coming down with colds and flu and other stuff. And you just have and you have to work through it all the time. So I'm not whining about the job of being a congressman. I loved my job. I know John loved, it's clear how much, you know, John loved, loved his job. We were, yeah. we're happy to do the work and, 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 and do the work, but it takes a toll. Let me, let me actually, I'd love to take us back to Chairman Yarmouth to something you said a few minutes ago. I'm not a literary agent, but I guarantee you, you could sell a book called House Arrest. Just <laughs> the title is half the battle with these yeah. things. And you, that is just a slam dunk of a title. <laughs> so let's, let's, right, so let's live on this show. I would love to write your book pitch as your, as your not literary agent. The, the, the number one thing that I think people would like to hear about, I mean, you are not just inside the room. You are running the meeting when it comes to some of these fraught negotiations inside the Democratic caucus with the biggest piece of legislation. I mean, many people compare it to the legislation that created the Great Society. We're now in the thick of the Build Back Better agenda paired with the infrastructure bill. And collectively, it's the biggest package of, of legislation that's been passed in the last 50 years. And of course, there have been so many stories emerging in the media about what a what a difficult back and forth that's been. So as you write the first chapter of your book live on air with us right now, what what stood out to you? What what's it been like maneuvering inside that room and inside that negotiation? Anything you can share with people about some of that contentious back and forth? 
Sure. One, one of the interesting things has been that, you know, my, my job in this process pretty much is hurting. I, I've said my, my goal throughout all of this, both with the American Rescue Plan and now with Build Back Better and, and well, I, didn't, I haven't been really engaged in the infrastructure bill, has been to be not Joe Manchin. In other words, I don't want to cause, I don't <laughs> want to be an obstacle getting this done or not, not Kirsten Cinema. So what I've been trying to do is, you know, I've, I've met with all the caucuses, the, the progressives, the blue dogs, the new Dems, the Hispanic caucus, the black caucus, and try to figure out where their bottom lines are and what, what, what kind of, where, and where their red lines are, if there are any. And one of the things that's actually been pretty revealing to me is that the only people who have been drawing red lines in this process have been the people who have never been in a governing majority before. People like, mm. at least in Congress, they may have been in the state legislature, but so, you know, Pramila Jayapal, she's, this is her third term. Josh Gottheimer, I could go down the list of all of them who have taken pretty strident positions. Pramila's the leader actually, of the progressives and, and the leader, I guess, of, of the moderate faction that right. have been having the back and forth. Right. And I think that's telling because they've, they've never been in a situation where they have to accept 80% of a piece of legislation. And, right. and, and they feel they were sent here with a, a mandate to do something dramatic. And you, know, you never get 100% of what you want in Congress. And so that's, I think, been one of the biggest revelations to me. And, and they'll learn. I mean, they're learning right now. <laughs> Yesterday said, you know, we're real happy with what the reports that have been coming out about what is going to end up in the final package. Uh, she said, we're real happy because all of, our all of our priorities have been addressed in one way or another. And so, you know, that, that's certainly a sign of her maturing in, in this process. She's no longer, we're not going to support this bill if it doesn't have $3.5 trillion in top line spending. So <clears throat> that's um, been something that I think, again, we're just breaking out of. And I, I really attribute it to Joe Biden coming to the House about a week and a half ago, two weeks ago, when he basically said, look, we're not going to we're not going to do these separately. We're going to pass both these bills or I'm not going to sign them. And so we all need to get on board. And, and I think that refocus, everybody was out playing their kind of attention games and and brinkmanship. And then he put it in perspective and said, no, we're going to get these done and we're going to do them as a package. Uh, so, yeah. and I think that kind of broke a little bit of the log jam, log jam and create, created a little bit different mindset. You know, just thinking back to what you said about, you know, let's, let's, let's find 80% of, of what we want and, and remember the perfect is the enemy of the good. You know, I recall when we all had really tough votes to take. I mean, if I, if I could get, if I could vote on a big bill that had 80% of what I wanted, I mean, I, that was like, that was a red letter day. Most of the time it was, a, the case was 51% and hold my nose and, and pray that I could, I could, that there was enough good stuff in it that outweighed the bad stuff and 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 i learned i i learned that lesson uh, pretty quickly john talk to us a little bit about how things have changed since we came together to congress what's what's the best change what's the worst i'm not sure there is a best change you know i i think if, and this gets way in the weeds but i would say the the way we've actually changed the schedule uh, so that we're doing we're spending two weeks um, away from Washington 
and reserving those weeks for committee work, hearings and markups, and then two weeks of voting. So when we're in Washington, we're voting almost exclusively. Committees basically aren't meeting. They've done their work in the two weeks. But this was pandemic creation of the pandemic because for a while, nobody wanted to come to Washington. And the way to get the work done was remotely. Well, the rules have have never allowed electronic voting, although we're now doing remote uh, proxy voting. But committee work is fine under the rules. But I think that's been a good change. The worst change has been that we now have one party that has given up all interest in governing. And so we find ourselves constantly, since we've been back in the majority, we're negotiating with ourselves, but we're not negotiating with Republicans because they're not interested in participating. This, you know, the first evidence I saw that was back when we were doing the Affordable Care Act, and I was on the I remember. Yeah, yeah, I was on the Ways and Means Committee. Yeah, and you would think that a bill that was going to affect every American directly, that that was going to affect 18% of the American economy, that everybody would want to participate in that process, right? And we had, a, we had a meeting, I'll never forget it, of the member, just the members of the Ways and Means Committee. This is rare. It's almost unheard of. No staff in the room. You know this, Matt. No staff in the room. No, obviously, no media. It was just 45 members. And our chairman at the time, Charlie Rangel, asked the Republicans, is there, and I'll never, he put it just this way, is there any way we can write a health care reform bill that any one of you can support? And they said, no. And then they started saying, but we'd like to see this in it and this in it and this in it. Well, Charlie asked, if we put those things in it, would you vote for it? No. And oh, that's, and that's I, really what, that you know, one, yeah. another example more recently is, you know, we, we had a debate last year about raising the minimum wage. And, you know, we, a lot of Democrats are raising the minimum, national minimum, federal minimum wage to $15. Well, what did the Republicans say? They didn't say, no, well, maybe we ought to raise it to nine and then 10 and then 11. Uh, they said, no, we don't want to raise it. Yeah. Well, how do you deal with that? Right. And, you don't. You, you can't. You well, you I can. think we're only laughing along because it, it's easier to laugh than to cry about something like that. And I mean, I, I'd love to suggest that if you'd had staff in the room, we would have gotten it done for <laughs> you. But we wouldn't. It's, 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 it's just as bad on the staff level. You were just starting to say that one of the changes that has occurred since you and Paul came to Congress 15 years ago is that it's just become harder, if not impossible, for Republicans and Democrats to work together because Republicans have taken this approach of saying no to everything. And when you ask them, well, are there things you'd like to see? They say, yeah, we want this, this, and this, but we're still not going to vote for anything you put forward. We're not going to talk to you. We're not going to have a meaningful exchange. There's no partner for peace here. And so it's become sort of a pointless exercise. It even went so far in 2012 for the then Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell to say that his number one job was to prevent President Obama at the time from getting a second term. He wanted to be the land of no, say no to absolutely everything. Now you share a delegation in Kentucky with Leader McConnell. You actually have insights into him that the rest of us around the country really don't have. So what does the national media and the average political observer not understand about him? Are there things that Democrats can do to work productively with him and Republicans 
or is it like Barney Frank once said, it, you might as well just talk to the coffee table? I think it's closer to the latter. I've known Mitch, and for those, nobody would know this in this audience, but I was Republican until 1985, and I was a political ally of Mitch's. Now, back then, you could still be a progressive and be comfortable in the Republican Party. Well, not in 85, but certainly in the 60s and the, and the 70s. And, you know, that's, so I've known Mitch since 1968. And Mitch has always been someone who has never really had an interest in policy. That's the thing that people uh, should know, first and foremost. He doesn't care about policy. He cares about power. And he cares about his position and, and his, his personal legacy. But he doesn't really care about doing anything with that power. That's the strange thing. It's like he's, he has said his greatest legacy will be packing the uh, federal court system with conservative justices. But he doesn't know to what end. It's not like he thinks, okay, now we're going to have federal justices, so we're going to get this kind of a country. The thought process doesn't go that far. And that's, to me, uh, just a waste of a career. But it's also, it may, again, it makes it very, very difficult. The current debate, and Mitch will say anything. Mitch is shameless. He will say anything, even if he said something 180 degree, 80 degrees different five minutes before. And, you know, I, I'm in the unfortunate, but somewhat unfortunate position of being the only Democrat in the federal delegation. So I'm always asked to, to comment on things that Mitch says. And I feel like I'm kind of piling on, but I can't let him get away with a lot of the nonsense that he spews. Most, I think the most important recent example of that is, is regarding the debt ceiling and Mitch's position that he, he will say unequivocally, the debt ceiling has to be raised we cannot default on the debt of the United States, but neither I nor any of the Republicans are going to help the Democrats do it. And it's a purely brazen, blatant political calculation. It has nothing to do with the, the substance of the question, question which is, would, would members allow the United States to default on its debt for the first time in its history? And, and he will say, well, this is the Democrats' debt. You know, we're, 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 we don't want to raise the debt ceiling because of the, they're proposing all the, putting up all this legislation. Well, a lot of the debt he voted for, including the CARES Act and many other things that, that were enacted during the Trump administration. But he's not even accurate about that because if you look at the tax cuts that Republicans passed without a Democratic vote in either the House or the Senate in 2017, that tax, those tax cuts are still adding to the national debt as we speak, about $250 billion this year, about another $250 billion next year, maybe $220 billion the year after that. So he is, not, he, he is actually just in denial saying, not, and not willing to admit that this is partially a totally purely Republican debt that he's not willing to pay for. And I said, you know, that he must have gone to the Trump School of Business, which is don't pay the debts that you uh, accrue. But again, it's, he is the most Machiavellian politician, I think, that probably ever walked through the halls of, of the Capitol.
You know, in addition to uh, in addition to uh, being a graduate of the Trump School of Business, he's also clearly a graduate of the Trump School of uh, Integrity in terms of the way he he speaks, and and that has uh, I think that's largely eluded the media and the public in 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 holding accountable politicians who simply uh, lie for convenience and for political power. And it's going to, it's up to the American people to, to take note and for the media to really call it out. And when you're, when the media is covering powerful people, often that just doesn't happen enough. But another thing you, you, you talked about in terms of what the Republicans have done and, and frankly, usually do when they're in power, which is um, dig us deeper and deeper into a hole of debts and, and, and deficits. I want to turn to an actual policy discussion, which is that Medicare faces a 30-year shortfall in trillions of dollars, something like $71 trillion, $31 trillion for Social Security, discretionary spending, $3 trillion a shortfall. I mean, in, in, in terms of budgeting terms, we're looking at an awful lot of American red ink. And I'm uh, curious to know whether you and and fellow Democrats see that as alarming or manageable. I, I, I'm a member of the Concord Coalition, which has been crying into the wind about debts and deficits for a long time. Even when I came to Congress as a Democrat, when it wasn't necessarily fashionable, I was I was worried about debts and deficits back then. So does it make the wrangling over the price tag of Build Back Better program more frustrating or understandable? Or does it does it matter at all anymore? It's interesting, Paul. We had uh, uh, February of 2020, we had a hearing in the Budget Committee calls called Does Debt Matter? Uh, that was the title and the, and the subject. And we had four economists one of whom was Douglas Holtz-Aiken, who's uh, been a deficit hawk all of his life. And this was, and he was uh, director of CBO, Congressional Budget Office at one yeah. point. Yeah. And all four of them basically said, no, right now debt doesn't matter. And part of that was responding, was that we had to respond to the, to the pandemic and we needed to spend whatever we needed to spend. But there was a, 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 a bigger perspective on this. And, and that is that, for years, we have been thinking about the debt, federal debt, in our own frames of reference, our businesses, our families, our state and local governments. And what I think is there's a growing realization of is that the federal government doesn't work that way. The federal government can create as much money as it needs to create to do what it needs to do to serve the American people. The only constraint on our ability to do that is that we can't put more money into the economy than the economy can absorb, because then you get inflation, which hurts everybody. Even, even the Fed chair, Jay Powell, is, this is called modern monetary theory. Jay has not embraced that, but he has said on many occasions in the last year or so, we have plenty of fiscal space to do what we need to do. Fiscal space being essentially sure. creating money. Yep. So the other thing that that's kind of led to a rethinking of this is, and I, re I remember Paul Hode, I mean, Paul uh, Ryan was chairman of the budget committee uh, back in, when we lost the majority in, in 2010. And he would, every meeting, he would come up and put all these charts up. Here's, here's the way the debt's going. It's going right. this high. And, and this is going to crowd out all, we're going to end up spending 
much more to service that debt and it's going to crowd out other spending. We're going to get all this inflation and the dollar is going to be weakened. And as time went on, the, the national debt has tripled since I've been in Congress. Went from right. $9 trillion to $28 trillion. Right. And what's happened? We have historically low interest rates. Until recently, because of the pandemic, we had no real inflation. And the dollar is not weakened at all. The dollar has been fairly strong. So a lot of people have been saying, hey, all this stuff that was supposed to happen when we kept accruing debt has not happened. So maybe we're thinking about it wrong. That's, that's kind of where we are today. And it, again, it's, it's a tough thing to talk about in the public arena because it's, it's pretty high level thinking. And it's also counterintuitive to the way the vast majority of Americans think about debt. And that's understandable. But the, the federal government is in, in a unique position not just with regard to its ability to spend money, but it's unique in the world. I mean, there are only about 10 countries who, who, which have a sovereign currency, which we have, and, and who borrow and spend in their own currency. And unless you do that, then you, none of these rules apply. So like the European, none of the European Union countries can do what we can do because they, all, they have a common currency. So it's, it's, a very, it's very interesting. I'm, I've become kind of a convert to modern monetary theory and have had a lot of interesting discussions. And there's a, there's a woman named Stephanie Kelton who wrote a book called The Deficit Myth, which has become a, pretty much a bestseller in, that, yep. in the business economics field. And I, I recommend the book, but all you have to do is go on to, to YouTube and watch some of her lectures and you'll get a sense of uh, a very different way to think about how the federal government operates. You know, let me, the only comment I'd, I'd make is that what you have just illuminated has really started setting off sparks in my own in my own head. Matt Robeson and I used to talk about the difference in messaging that between Democrats and Republicans and what Republicans' traditional agenda was about fiscal responsibility and the you know the the hypocrisy of coming in to govern and uh, digging us into a deep hole and then when democrats take over to fix things republicans would always start yelling about the debts and the deficits and if there was some way to to be to to message about this change in in thinking and 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 the realization about the unique position that we are in in terms of debts and deficits it would certainly cut one of the legs off the stool of the traditional Republican philosophy. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you're, you're right. It's a very difficult messaging proposition. And, you know, I get, I get all sorts of flack when I go on media and I talk about this and say, hey, we, we have the ability to spend whatever we need to spend. And then there are like, then there are qualifications on that, which, mm -hmm. and you know, when you're explaining, you're losing. And, yeah. but, but the other, the other constraints, I shouldn't say the constraint, but the only other thing that's kind of, I think, logical is that you have to make, you have to spend it in an intelligent way. You know, sure. the government can't. So if, if we just said, we're going to, we're just going to buy marijuana for everybody in the country, that probably wouldn't be a productive use of more debt. And, and on the other side of the coin, if you're giving tax cuts to wealthy people who are not going to put that savings to work to benefit the economy, that's also wasteful spending. Right. You cut taxes and reduce revenue, and you know companies use it to buy their stock back or to increase dividends to their very their wealthy stockholders and so forth. So, right. yeah. 
Yeah. And it's, I liked it. And, and by the way, those two examples probably stand on equal footing in terms of <laughs> in terms of of the intelligence of the spending. Exactly. Well, look, I mean, you you really could politically lock down the California vote. I mean, <laughs> I mean, look from the from from the silly to the absolutely profound and and perhaps profane. I I think that it's beyond question, as we were alluding to a moment ago, that you are going to walk away from Congress having accomplished arguably as much as, as any individual member of Congress ever with the passage of the American Rescue Plan and what I am confident will be this package of the Build Back Better and Infrastructure Bill. And those are laudable, historic accomplishments. But I think we'd be remiss to not touch on the other side of the coin, which is what many see and what I certainly see as a looming existential threat to the country, which is, and I'm not talking about climate change in 20 or 30 or 50 years. Right. I'm talking about the very real prospect that the 2024 presidential election is going to lead to an absolute meltdown of our constitutional system of government. We came far closer in 2020 than we realized at the time or than most people realize now. And I'm right now, as we record this, in the midst of writing an article that lays out people are still sleeping on just how deep the threat is just three years from now that it really could be a total, not just meltdown of our system, but an actual violence in invoking event. To what extent, now I'm not sure if you agree, <laughs> but to what extent do you agree? Do you see that danger? And is there discussion going on inside the Democratic caucus about this right now? Because we've gone on the Republican side, not just from voter suppression measures, but to actual election subversion measures passed in Republican-controlled states that would allow Republican legislatures to step in in the next presidential vote and monkey with it or actually overturn Democratic votes to deliver the presidency to Donald Trump again in 2024. It is, is this something that you and your colleagues are talking about and worried about? The answer is a most resounding yes. I'll tell you, I gave a speech to the Louisville Rotary Club back in 2019. And I started, and I, I was speaking about something very different, the balance of my speech, but I just started, I said, by the way, I'm just gonna throw this out there. If you don't think that our democracy is in a precarious position now, you're not paying attention. And I just left it there. But clearly, everything that's happened since that time has only made that concern manifold, uh, more significant with the legislation that's being passed in states all over the country. We're very much concerned about it. I mean, that's why we passed H.R. 1. That was the first bill, bill we passed in this Congress to, to vote, voting reforms. And then the John Lewis Act, which deals, deals with the Voting Act, of whatever that was, 65. And... So, yeah, we, we've done our work in the House, and we talk about it all the time, and we're baffled that, that in the Senate, there's not one Republican who shares our concern about election integrity, and there's the two Democratic senators who refuse to change the ridiculous to help support our democracy. And obviously, that's the filibuster and, and Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema again. And to, to be honest, the president has not been as, I think, focused on this and and focused on action in the Senate as he should be. But, you know, he, obviously he's got a lot going, but arguably none of this other stuff matters. You know, if we pass the Build Back Better Act and 
Republicans take control of the government, then they can reverse that in a heartbeat. So we're all very, very concerned about it. You know, it's a, it's, it's a really tough environment to be facing the rise of autocracy as evidenced by so much, by what happened January 6th, by the reluctant Republicans to have it, to, to, to wear the mantle of statesmanship to any degree, but rather just to be the, the party of the party of, of no no to everything. Not you you hardly hardly could classify them as a loyal opposition. And at the same time, we have the ongoing issues around the pandemic for for the people of the United States. You know, it, it feels like the 21st century has moved from a shocking disaster on 9-11 through 20 years of increasing chaos and dysfunction, because one of the results of the Republican position, which is we're not going to govern, we don't care, all we care about is power, it has been to brand everybody who serves with the same, with the same brush. And that may have been, that may be the 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 theory that may be the reason if we if we get everybody just so disgusted with politics and what 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 the work of the country is then we have the opportunity to slide in and and take power now i we only have a few minutes left i think but but you know you and i john traveled to israel together with your son aaron we traveled by bus we had a remarkable experience together i i i really i remember it well and fondly and i and i remember aaron very very fondly as a really bright really a really bright just charming and wonderful youngster well now he's he's a dad and i have heard rumors that Aaron is reported to be considering running for your seat when you retire and not uh, necessarily asking you to make any news on his behalf here. But but let's just say that he decided to run. What advice would you have for him about running and about serving today as a member of Congress? Well, I, I would give him, and by the way, I will make some news. He's, he's not going to run. He, he thought about it seriously and I, th I think ultimately he decided there's a, another candidate who's announced named Morgan McGarvey, who's a Kentucky state senator, a brilliant young guy. And Morgan and, and my son are very good friends. And he decided that you know, if Morgan's in the race, he doesn't bring anything different to the race than Morgan does. And I mean, although he's a nicer guy, I think. <laughs> but, uh, and by the way, he turned 38 two days ago. Yeah, same, same age as my son. They're no longer children. Right, no longer children. But uh, what I would give them, the same advice that I give to everybody who asks me about running, be yourself, don't try to fake it. Fake it, faking it doesn't work. Uh, you see, you know, I can give you countless examples going back to Al Gore and there, there are many who thought they couldn't be who they are and, and win a campaign and created false personalities and they didn't work. Smile a lot. As a matter of fact, smile at every person you meet. That's the other piece of advice I, I give every candidate. And particularly in this toxic environment, you, you do use every tool you can to disarm people. And when you smile at them, when you encounter them, that's a little bit disarming. And, uh, and the other thing is, and this is kind of a corollary of the, of the first thing, be genuine in your beliefs. Say what you believe. People will give you credit for that 
before they'll give you credit for much else. And the other thing I would say is in this world, and there are people who will differ with me, but I don't think many anymore. People don't vote based on issues. They don't base they don't vote based on what you you talk about the policies you talk about. They they vote with their gut. Well, first of all, now they vote with their part your party label. That's sad, but that's that's where we are. Your your political identity has become part of your personal identity in, in far too many cases. So I would say that be yourself, make people like you because that's how they're going to vote, whether they like you or and feel good about you. And, and, an intuition that you will be respectful of them and that you will listen to them. And that's what most people want. John Yarmouth, we like you and we are happy that you're in the position you are and we wish you well when you retire. It's, it's, I'm blessed to call you my friend and thank you for joining us. Um, for Beyond Politics, I'm your host, Paul Hodes, with co-host Matt Robeson, John Yarmouth, chair of the Budget Committee, has joined us. And what a great conversation from a great friend of democracy. John, thanks so much. Thanks for having me, Paul.